Welcome to Atlas, the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society. Hello! Um, Welcome to Atlas, the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm just going to check that this is working because we've had some technical difficulties. Oh, there it is. Um, Cool, we're working. Um, Thank you so much for joining. Before we get started, I want to talk to you about MISA's upcoming event. This Thursday, we have Dr. Stephanie Williams, who is the uh, Ambassador for Regional Health in the Indo-Pacific Asia, Indo-Pacific region um, for DFAT. She's an expert. She's going to be talking about all things public health related. Um, That's at 2 p.m. this Thursday. You have to register. So go to our Facebook or go to our Instagram bio, um, click the register so you receive the Zoom link so that you can attend that. It's going to be a great event. Okay. Um, Also, if you have any questions or topics for today, please comment them below or send them to us at Facebook and Instagram and we can try and address them and talk to them in the live stream. Um, I'm Georgia Potter. I'm the communications officer at Myers. Um, today I am joined by Gus and Hammer. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourselves and talk, like, tell us a little bit about yourself? You can go first, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Chris Sowick, or uh, Gus, as uh, as um, as people in Myers like to call me. Um, I'm uh, I was an international relations student at Monash. Um, doing global studies and science and um and for the past couple of years i've been a i've been a writer at pivot um writing particularly on climate change and how that intersects with everything else um and uh it's a it's an important conversation to have um and uh yeah look forward to talking about all that and other stuff I hate talking about myself, so. <laughs> um, yeah, so my name's Hammer. Um, you might have seen me around this year or like last year, I've been involved in MIAS quite a bit. Um, this year, I'm the vice president of MIAS, so it's been pretty exciting. Um, but last year, I was also the socials officer. Um, and um, I've also been pivot writer around the same time that Gus started as well. So, um, yeah, and I'm studying international relations in French. So, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you, guys. Um, how have you been? How are things going? How's uni? How's life in lockdown? What's happening? Um, well, I mean, I'm still working, so it's not as, I guess it's not as bad for me because I still kind of, like, leave the house and see people. Um, but I know, like, a lot of people who obviously are living by themselves, for example, um, I find it quite hard. So I don't know about you. What about you guys? Um, well, I've been in a, I live in a hotspot postcode. So we were one of the first to go in a lockdown. It's, um, call me insane, but I think, I think I'm on, we're on day 56 or something out here. Um, so and we've still got three more weeks to go of stage four. And then of course it's only natural stage three comes afterwards to sort of, you know, um, ease ourselves down, but, um, I guess one thing that's come out of this pandemic, it's not really international relations, but it has been how 
poorly designed our suburbs are. I live in out out in a growth area um, in, in the outer north of Melbourne. And so um, in my 5Ks, I literally have one Woolworths, uh, um, one cafe, two, uh, if I can walk that far, and uh, two petrol stations. That's it. Um, and 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 we've got one small park, but we've got a conservation reserve where you have where I actually have to drive like 10, 15 minutes to get to, which is nice. And you know, it's it's got some native uh, biodiversity and and sort of it's very quiet and very tranquil. Um, but you know, still it's uh, it's nothing like being stuck in Brunswick or or you know Pran. Um, and so there's, uh, it'll be fascinating what sort of things come out of it afterwards and because it does then, you know, affect people's mental health, but there's really not much to do around the area. Um, and yeah, that's how, yeah. I mean, I'm personally, I'm doing well, I'm doing that's well, I've kept myself that's busy. <laughs> yeah, I've, considering. I've, I've picked up painting as a hobby and so, you know, um, uh, and plenty of books as well lovely um well the theme for today which we'll talk about like io news and stuff as well later but for the start off i want to talk about like all international affairs related media so that's movies television musicals anything you can think of art whatever um that's about international affairs and that's pretty bored because i feel like um it's sort of been just an excuse to talk for people who like international affairs to talk about our favorite movies and you know what we go to for comfort i like for me i know that there's definitely like different types that i consider like international relations films um are like politics films and stuff but then there's also things like war movies or historical dramas and stuff i think it's like there's a broad range that you can sort of talk about this so I just wanted to ask you guys like what's your sort of favorites what stand out for you for like when you think of like international affairs films uh, I honestly I feel like I don't watch as much as I used to like tv or film like film wise because I think and I'm quite busy and I just like never have like the time to sit down I usually like watch all my films when I go on a plane you know because you like you have nine hours to yourself you like don't know what to do so that's where all the films come in but um I don't really know what kind of like international relations um films like the, like the one that comes to mind which is actually really no it doesn't actually like make sense but you, like you know the um the Marvel Cinematic Universe okay I feel like that actually does come into it with international relations it's subtle but you see it you know like like everything like businesses like and then you have like war obviously um but then there's also even that scene wasn't it like in black panther spoiler alert but like then like that, that thing at the un that happened so it does, yeah. it does come and creep into all the films and stuff but um i think to actually recognize how like um what it is about and stuff i think it's you gotta look at it through like an international perspective yeah, I feel like it's easy because lots of films now have that international perspective. But I was thinking Black Panther too because it does sort of, even though it's a made-up country, um, Wakanda, like it does have some really interesting questions about like um, lots of like international issues, and it sort of deals with it and how like a head of state would deal with it. And even though it's like a Marvel movie, which is the last thing you'd expect, um, you sort of see those. Like I know when I watched it, I like you know my IR student brain was like going off because like that's the sort of things you think about. <laughs> 
Funnily enough, um, on, on I, I'm, I have probably heard it plenty of times from me, but uh, when I did my semester exchange in Canada back in 2018, um, uh, I took imperialism as a class where we, you know, discussed colonialism and all of that. And, um, and, and Black Panther came out during that semester. And so literally, quite literally, one of our assignments was to go to the cinemas and watch Black Panther. And then we would have a class discussion the week afterwards. Um, and, and so a, a lot of interesting fact things came out of it. Um, you know, we, we put on an imperial imperialism lens and, and, and sort of looked at how the um, our own sort of Africa's imperial history and colonial history over the past uh, 100, 200 years affected how the film was made, but then also how the film portrayed, in, you know, imperialism itself. Um, and 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 a lot of sort of interesting perspectives came up about, you know, um, of, of course uh, th there was the entire. Um, uh, uh, how, how Black Panther was one of the first sort of big hit films that had a primarily black cast casting, um, and so there were also things about you know the um, the more racial history between Africa and then also the U.S. Um, but then um, another another film um, I always like to go to is <laughs> Downfall. Uh, have you guys seen it? It's a German film on the last days of World War II. Um, it's, uh, it follows, it's, it's a meme. Have you seen the meme where Hitler has a rant oh, about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's, There's a good Ben Andrews um, one going around at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's where the video clip is from. It's on Netflix oh, okay. right now. If you haven't watched it yet, definitely recommend. Oh, excellent. Sort of in a similar vein. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen The Death of Stalin. Um, I thought that was really, really good. I think it's on Stan, maybe. Um, yeah. I watched it a while ago, but it's sort of, it's a bit of a comedy and it sort of follows um, the sort of chaos that um, Soviet Russia was in after um, Stalin died and sort of who was going to take over next. Um, it's pretty, it's like a bit lighthearted, so it's a bit funny while sort of tackling the same um, serious things at the same time, which I think is like a lot of good like IR, like content that I, like especially politics stuff, like when you like put into that satirical lens, because it can be hard because like sometimes you're like, this is a very serious topic. And like when we study it or when we watch documentaries about it, like it's easy to get bogged down and be like, and this is what was, you know, things that caused death or you know things like you're talking about these really serious things but it's nice just to have like the satirical thing i know for me probably my favorite tv show um is veep um which is about follows the like a fictional vice president of um the united states um played from elaine from seinfeld um and she um it's sort of a mess and everyone's a mess but it's sort of like it's sort of to bring up another show, it's sort of like satirizing um, the West Wing and, and it's sort of like making fun of the day to day sort of jobs of um, the um, White House staffers. And it's very good. It's like like it's a bit of a um, 20 minute sitcom. Um, I would definitely recommend it because, like, I don't know, it's very funny and they're all like horrible people, but it's easy to laugh at them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of, uh, I'm, 
uh, there, there are those also like three TV shows centered around the White House, which is like, you've named Beep and um, West Wing, but then there's, you know, House of Cards as well. And, and uh, there's a saying online where people working in Washington think they're in the West Wing doing good stuff. Um, and then everybody outside thinks it's like the House of Cards where there's a lot of malicious stuff happening and it's all, you know, there's bloodshed everywhere. But the reality is Veep, where nobody has any idea what they're doing and nothing goes as it's planned. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's perfect. Uh, that, 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 I love that. Was a good uh, comparison. <laughs> yeah, it definitely hits a bit too close to home sometimes, Veep. And I think you're right. I feel like the West Wing is so, like, I don't know if you guys have watched it, but I've watched the first few seasons. It's good, um, but it's so, like, romanticising um, the White House and politics. And because it came out, like, 20 years ago, like, even though people are still very critical of the White House then, I think, like, even more so now, um, people are so, like, critical of, of the White House and of, I guess, the current administration, but other administrations in the past, I think it's more popular now to be like, they don't know what they're doing and they don't really care about democracy and stuff. I think that's a much more popular through line. And it's funny to go back and watch something like the West Wing where they're, they're like, we're doing, you know, the work for this country, for America, and, you know, we're, you know, the greatest country on earth and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's yeah. still like a good show, but it's just, it's very funny compared to, yeah, to watch it back today. Um, I guess more into American politics. This is less from the IR thing. It's more from like a social movement um, perspective that I wanted to mention quickly because it was really good. It came out this year, the first season. I don't know if they're going to do another season, but they should. Um, I don't know how it would work though. Is um, Mrs. America? It um, states. I don't know if you guys watched it, but it stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis um, Schlafly, who is this really awful, terrible. <laughs> advocate um from the 60s and 70s who um sort of advocated um against the it's all about the women's um liberation movement and she sort of advocated against um the era and the equal rights amendment and um she sort of went up against figures like um shirley chisholm and julia steinem um and those sorts of people and it's sort of the and bella Abzug, and it features um, those characters and they all, each episode sort of focuses on one of the characters and so you sort of get both sides of women who are involved in this political discussion, some people who are really successful in fighting for women's causes but at the same time you have people like Phyllis Schlafly who is a hugely successful political person. Like um, she died a few years ago but like, you know, um, she was one of the people who endorsed Trump. Um, she had like had a very active political career um, but it's interesting seeing her perspective and how it's sort of, you know, no spoilers, but it sort of showed how at the end of the day in her home life, she was fighting for the same feminism or she wanted to, she was fighting against the feminism that allowed her to be in the position that she was, um, which was really interesting. So I definitely think if you're interested in more like in feminism or social movements or, you know, any sort of that stuff, check it out. Uh, I think it was on Foxtel. So um, I don't know where it will be now, but I think you should definitely try and watch it if you can. What about you guys? Anything else you have you can think of? Um, I don't know, to be honest. I think rather for me, I think rather than like actively seeking um, shows or films that like us like based the IR, I kind of like try to see the IR in like other films. In everything. Shows because mm. for again, this is like another random thing. 
Um, also, if you think about it in Game of Thrones, okay, even just that in itself, like you can that like his his like you can bring in your like knowledge of like history and how power plays out and all this kind of stuff. And I think, I think in a way, that's kind of what is great about AI in the sense as a theory or as a like worldview. Sometimes is that like you can apply it to most things, and you're like, ah, oh, it makes sense. It makes sense why things are like that sometimes, you know. <laughs> but yeah. And I, uh, sorry, and, and I think of an um. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, when we do learn about theories in IR, um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, realism, liberalism, they all focus on the big stuff. And so that's when we think talk foreign policy or IR, we immediately go to what nation states, what countries are doing, how they're acting, um, what their priorities are, what their goals are. Um, but then, you know, the constructivism and, and a lot of um, writing that's been happening in the past years i guess um perhaps even longer um but but it's intensified in the last couple of months is how much domestic policy and what's happening at the micro level affects foreign policy and how countries act and so there was there's an article in um foreign policy the the sort of uh, i'm not sure what you call it a newspaper uh um, magazine but the a recent article of theirs there's all great power politics is local um and so uh, and you know we've seen it over um, the over the course of the Trump administration, where domestic grievances and um, uh, and domestic priorities have uh, have sort of uh, um, accumulated in how America has, has acted in foreign policy. You know, a lot of uh, America's posturing around China, have, you know, it directly comes from domestic grievances around manufacturing being lost and um, American jobs going to China and no, you know, whether those claims are as credible as they uh, claim to be um, are questions to answer as well. But um, I think even here in, you know, Australia, when, um, when we are sort of looking at how we engage with Asia, Southeast Asia, a lot of it comes from how Australians, you know, you, you go to your local pub or cafe and ask how people think about foreign policy. And um, during election times, all that filters up. And of course, um, uh, uh, there was a, um, you know, uh, the, the defense announcement by our own government a couple of weeks back, a couple of months back. Um, and it, it, it had as much to do with addressing domestic politics as it was about international politics and you know um billions of dollars in defense sure you know we, we do need it in the long term but the framing was as much about appeasing domestic concerns because it was happening during a by-election um and i think that's a um that's something we often forget and so going back to the question about ir and stuff um i, I also think looking at how people interact with each other and and what the day-to-day -day grievances and concerns are that they and the issues that they're facing that you know um uh when, when we look at it day-to-day -day, it doesn't really tell that much of a you know a story but when you put it into the broader broader fabric of society um it's really able to show you how um how your neighbor feels might affect what australia's next foreign policy intervention will be <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think both of you are sort of hit on the head. You can sort of read um, IR 
into everything, into most um, forms of media. Like you can, I can see how it's affected the story, or um, and vice versa. How you know depictions of IR and the public ground level understanding of it affects what actual foreign policy is. Um, so yeah, interesting, very interesting. Um, anything else you want to mention before we move on to like general news and everything? No. Lovely. Um, so next I'm going to um, bring up, I'll put it in the comments below, um, a, the, one of our recent pivot articles written by Gus about uh, Australian identity. Um, it's a good read. I've just chucked it in the um, comments if you want to read it. Um, Gus, do you want to talk to us a little bit about your thinking with this one and a bit about what you had to say? Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, if, uh, when I started writing it, of course, it was it, it uh, the first iteration was a very different article. Um, it came out of, of course, um, uh, everything that's happened in America since um, the, since the death of George Floyd, of course, and and sort of America's been reflecting on themselves of what sort of country they are, um, who who Americans are and how, how, what kind of sort of country they want to build going forward. And that's, you know, that's, it's a thing, it's a question, it's the types of questions they've engaged with ever since their independence. And then of course the civil war and all of that. And so um, it prompted me to sort of um, turn inwards and look at, you know, how Australia has addressed those same, um, same questions because we're, um, well, we're not necessarily born out of the same context of um, going to war with our countrymen and fighting over whether racism is good or not, um, or, you know, um, fighting for our own independence and freedom through bloodshed. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're still a constitutional monarchy like we have been since, um, since Federation and since before Federation. But, but the 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 two sort of key um, factors that Australia has had to deal with even before Federation has been that um, it is a primarily demographically primarily an Anglo country um, and uh, descendants of British uh, um, settlers and colonizers um, and but geographically where where amidst countries that don't look like us don't speak like us and have have an entirely different world view um and different history of things and so um uh, what i sought to do was explore how that understanding understanding how those two ideas can be reconciled has shaped how australia has has developed our own foreign policy, our own interactions with our neighbours um, over the past couple of decades. And um, uh, I think with Federation, uh, of course, there were, when the states came together, the different colonies came to together, there was, of course, the idea of becoming a united country with our own aspirations and our own hopes and dreams of uh, what the 20th century would bring. but. Then again, there were also racist undertones in that, and and the how can we keep a white Australia and 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 the very 
fact that the first piece of legislation the Commonwealth Parliament passed was a Migration Act limiting who can come into Australia really speaks to that. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, white Australia policy was, it was held up for more than half a century and then World War II happened and we had to deal with um, going to war with one of, a, one of the superpowers in our region. And then, you know, they were at our doorsteps and then having to, having to um, adapt to refugees coming in from war ravaged Europe. And, and then there was um, refugees also coming in from East Asia. Uh, and that really started shifting how Australia looked like. All of a sudden you had Australians who were speaking, who, whose primary languages were Greek and Italian um, and going on, you know, uh, Vietnamese as well after the Vietnam War, um, Cambodian, um, and more and more so now, Mandarin, Cantonese, Hindi, Punjabi, um, Arabic, all that. And so we've really become a, a country that looks, speaks, and uh, behaves vastly different from where we were 100 years ago. But whether we've still gotten to marrying those two things together, um, you know, when we, when we still, when there are still international disasters and all of that happening, the first people we do turn to are, you know, the Anglosphere countries. Um, and, you know, th that has to do with the fact those are the countries we've dealt with the most that we do have uh, more formal relationships with. But um, going into the future, you know, the, the security risks um, and, and the challenges we do face, um, they're more in Asia and East Asia. And, and we've seen that with the, with the rise of China. Um, uh, but also uh, uh, the rise of India as the largest democracy in the world, and then having to sort of, you know, come come to terms with their own power that they weld, um, and having much more embedded trade, business, commerce, um, even education links with Asia has meant that it's just a web of relationships everywhere, and and. Um, I guess with that in mind, how do we put Australian interests first? And Australian interests really are, you know, the descendants of everybody that were here before Federation, but then also the new immigrants and the new Australians, such as myself. I just swore, um, uh, you know, I just took the pledge to become an Australian citizen last month. And so, um, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I, I'm also one of the new Australians that, um, when you know Australia acts outside internationally, they represent me as well, and I don't look anything like the people that were here a hundred years ago. Uh, so that's really <laughs> what I try to uh, grapple with in my article. Yeah, so a big, big topic. Not, not exactly like you know, <laughs> no. a small sort of like the entire history of the last hundred years of Australia, which is a lot. Um, definitely read if you can. I think it um, for me, especially when you're talking about it then. An idea that I sort of like think about a lot and try to grapple with a lot is um, how Australia, like how it picks and chooses when to embrace multiculturalism, which I think is really interesting because a lot of the time, you know, most political leaders will love to say, oh, we're such a multicultural country. Um, at the same time, we have this very like deeply rooted um, xenophobic like tendencies. Um, and I think that's 
you know, a very interesting thing to think about a lot um, and try and, like, I, I have to really try to critically examine when people say, oh, isn't it great that we're multicultural, if they're saying that as a throwaway line or if, you know, what their practices are and you really have to look at those practices and things like politicians, obviously policy as well about when you're actually attempting to accept and um, different cultures and or when you're just saying, isn't it great that we have people who like different food and I'm going to eat this, you know, <laughs> Vietnamese meal and say, yay, that we've got, you know, Vietnamese immigrants. It's, it's interesting and it's, yeah, it's something that I think about a lot when I think about like Australian culture because um, mm. there is no, I think there is no one Australian culture um, for me at least um, and I think that's a really interesting thing um yeah Hammer, did you have any thoughts or anything yeah um I, mean, I think pretty much i think you summed it up pretty well in your article so I, I would definitely recommend anyone else who hasn't read it to read it um but something with what you were saying before about how how domestic like people to people like on that ground level how that can affect the policy i think do you think that it's a do you think because you say there's obviously multicultural there's a bunch of different cultures in Australia. Do you think that impacts the policies that Australia carries currently or is it like that's something we need to improve on, work on, if that makes sense? Um, I, th I think it's definitely driven, um, yeah. driven all of that. For example, um, in my article, I cite um, the, the report that really sort of started all of this. Australia, um, where is it? Uh, Australia and the Northeast Asian Ascendancy, written yeah. by Ross Garneau. He's he's done a lot more stuff in climate change these days, but he he wrote mm -hmm. that under the Hawke government. Um, and even during then, he identified that um, one of the greatest things that can shift our relationships with East Asia, Northeast Asia, or Asia at large, is immigration, um, mm. uh, because. And of course, uh, immigration and um, uh, skilled people coming over eventually become citizens and they call yeah. this country their home as well. What that does in turn um, is, uh, you know, m m th there's an interest for then Australia to maintain those sorts of ties with those countries. So, um, you know, uh, one of the growing demographics and whether you look at the immigration levels or you know uh, new citizens is indians um and uh and, and that's sort of like growing every year and um and so you, you could also notice you know the australian government is taking a much more constructive approach to how it speaks to india and um does all of that and i think one of in the past recent history the the sort of uh, I guess um, a case study you can take is um, in the late 2000s when there were there were those racist attacks against Indian students here, um, and you know the, the um, from what I recall there were you know Indian students were being beaten up, and um, and they weren't Australian citizens but they were Indian students that had come here and you know. They plenty. They paid money to study here. They were working here. They were contributing here, um, and all of a sudden, it became a foreign policy issue because the Indian government was getting, you know, 
they're like, you know, well, we're sending our students there to get us an Australian education, and you know, and that, you know, um, and then you know, this is what you do to us. Even, uh, yeah, I feel like that's even kind of relevant today as well with the whole COVID situation and how um, I think there's been recommendations for like, I guess, like Asian students not to come to Australia because of how um, society dealt with it, um, with a lot of racist attitudes towards international students. Um, and I think it also doesn't help as well. I think a lot of the international students right now are also struggling as well because um, they've lost their jobs. Obviously, they don't get as much government support and stuff, but they still do pay tax and they pay, the, um, you know, pay for university, but they don't have the same support as us. So I think perhaps that might also, I guess, impact foreign policy in a way, I guess, yeah. the way you describe it, I guess. Yeah. And I think also, um, I remember the, during international relations major, or, or it might have been in global studies, actually, uh, the introduction to leadership units, uh, um, leadership for social change units, sorry, um, uh, the idea of a diaspora. Um, and, you know, um, even, for example, you know, my family, and it might be true of your family, Hamar, as well, where, you know, of, of course, you know, here in Australia, you've got a connection to Australia. Um, and even if it's the only citizenship you hold, you know, um, but then the diasporic links, which which embed you in a wider community of, you know, for example, the Punjabi community for myself, um, and uh, perhaps the Indonesian community for your family, Hama, um, uh, where that diaspora then transcends national boundaries. And, you know, you're a part of a community that isn't necessarily contained within a national border. Um, and so we have shared experiences with Punjabis living in New Zealand, or where I'm originally from. Um, uh, Punjabis in India, of course, where in originally Punjabis are from, um, but also in the UK and and throughout Europe. And so when when something afflicts our community in another country, we immediately feel uh, feel the consequences because we're embedded in that diaspora and, and we've got a shared history, we've got a shared language, a shared culture, of course, but then also the shared experiences. We might be in different countries, but we often go through the same sorts of, um, uh, the same sorts of uh, hardships and the challenges that are in, in, I don't want to call it integrating, but living in a new country. And so, you know, the, um, the, the challenges our community, many immigrant communities face settling in New Zealand or Australia or other colonial settler countries are the same, even though we have different laws, have uh, different cultures um, and different ways of immigrating, they're the same. And so when something does happen, um, you know, and, and a lot of immigrants do think, you know, this is something Australia should talk about or do because we're in Australia and they should represent our interests because we're a part of that wider diaspora. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't mind me asking, like what was um, the, was that a practical decision for you to become an Australian citizen officially? Or like, was there any sense of um, like, you wanted to do it um, for like any sort of like social or cultural reason? Um, or is it just like, it's I've been living here, it's time sort of thing? Um, well, it's my home now, you know. And, yeah. And I can't imagine living anywhere else um, as <laughs> um, as as beautiful as New Zealand is. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's it's where I see my future at, and so it only seems natural 
um, the opportunity was there and, and I'm grateful for that. And, um, but it's, you know, a bit of a side note, it's interesting as a New Zealand citizen, it's much more easier, even though I'm not white, um, it's much more easier for me to get citizenship here than it is if I was originally coming from India or another country. Um, even, even, you know, even other English speaking countries, uh, it's just New Zealand and Australia have such a close relationship. It's, you know, in a couple of years, you're set here. Um, and, but yeah, that's, you know, um, I was calling myself an Australian before I even officially took up the pledge. Like when I went to Canada, you know, it was much easier saying, you know, I'm an Australian, um, uh, you know, because, because at heart I did feel, um, feel Australian, but, um, it was easier saying that as well. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, that's well, thank you so much for talking about that. Yeah. Sorry, how are you? No, I was going to say, no, no, I feel like for me, citizenship is different because um, I was born here, but my, my, but I was still on, um, my parents still had like an Indonesian passport. So we, um, we were with that for a while. But I guess like my, I guess our decision is like slightly different to Gus's, I think. Um, also thinking about like the benefits of becoming like Australian citizen, I think something that's really interesting is like the value of a passport and how some passports give you greater access to a lot of different things, if that makes sense. I think looking at it like career wise and education wise, I think for me it was like, I mean, I identify more as Australian than Indonesian because I was I've been here for ages since my whole life, but it also kind of comes with that added thing. Like it's much easier for me to travel overseas, much easier for me, um, you know, uh, to get jobs as well. Cause a lot of times they have requirements to be a PR or Australian citizen, but then also like um, university as well, paying fees, you know, obviously hex and stuff like that. Um, so it's all those extra little things as well. I think um, that also, I think for me was also something that I kind of like noticed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's interesting. I was just going to say, like, I think we've seen a bit of that with, with the whole Brexit stuff. I remember a lot of people who have, like, British parents or have the opportunity to get a British passport. That was why a lot of Australians were, like, sad about it because they couldn't get their, like, EU passports, yeah. things like that, which just seems so crazy. But you're right. Like, there is also, like, just a practical, I want to be able to travel to these places and get these opportunities yeah. because of my passport, which is crazy. And And I think... Um, especially in Australia, the, uh, the, the greatest thing um, is the right to vote. Um, and yeah, it's, sure. you know, of course, there's mandatory, you know, you, you've got to show up to vote. It's, it's your obligation. Um, but interestingly, you know, only citizens can vote, um, which was, it, it was different from um, what I experienced in New Zealand, of course, where, you know, citizens can vote, but also permanent residents. And if you live long enough in New Zealand, you can vote. Um, and so I've been living in Australia for ne nearly 10 years and a voting age for about four years. Um, and, you know, living here and w when, when I was able to paying taxes here and um, living with the consequences of the Australian governments or, you know, our government's actions collectively. Um, not being able to have my voice put into those actions. Um, uh, if I hadn't decided to become an Australian citizen and I decided to stay in Australia for the rest of my life, I would be living in a country where I had no right to formally, you know, contribute to how our country should be run. Um, and, 
you know, I mean, people might have the thoughts, you know, of, of course, we've got a constitutional right to vote. And I'm not sure how many people have looked into it, whether that's just um, restricted to citizens or people who live here and, you know, the constitution covers them as well. Um, some people might have different opinions on that. Um, but that was another part, really, um, you know, uh, having, uh, having the right to vote in a country where everything the country does affects me. Um, and, you know, it, it just didn't seem right that I can live in a country but not be able to. For 10 years uh, yeah. and not vote once, yeah. it's, it's a huge flaw, I think. Um, yeah, I, can yeah, still, I can still vote in New Zealand's elections. I've, I've, I, I go there every couple of years and I can still vote there, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that about New Zealand. No worries. Yeah, no, that's that's different. And I wonder, like, do you think, like, I, I hearing this now, like, I, I definitely think we should change it to some system because it does seem very unfair. It does seem like some sort of deeply ingrained, whether deliberate or not, system to keep, you know, immigrants out of the voting system and to, you know, um, yes, yeah, it seems very limiting. Yeah, I, I, I just don't think anybody's thought much about that, to be honest. No. Uh, 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 I think a lot of people think, you know, once immigrants come, they study, work a couple of years and then go back, but many do stay then get onto the pathway to citizenship. But, you know, the regular pathway to citizenship can take, you know, the better part of 10 years, if, if not more, if you're unlucky. Um, and so, you know, um, yeah, and, and it, 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 it's something that came up when we had that whole, when parliament blew up over the dual citizenship scandal you know um where you know, where our constitution of course says you can only be a federal member of parliament if you're only a citizenship an australian citizen and you don't have obligations to any other country um and it takes that meaning to literally be um you can't be dual citizens despite you can have obligations to other countries when you're just a an Australian citizen, and you know, we've had a couple of politicians resign over the fact that they were taking donations from other foreign actors, despite being only Australian citizens. And so, um, uh, that was going through, uh, I think, a lot of people's minds even back then. And you know, of course, there are merits in that constitutional, you know, yeah. limitation on who can and who cannot uh, be a representative yeah. in federal parliament, but um. Uh, hey, you know that's that's something again about the Australian identity. That 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 was that piece yeah. in the constitution was put in so only people that were imperial subjects, uh, you know, British subjects, could um, get a, you know, be a representative in federal parliament. And that if you were if you were born elsewhere, came to Australia, became a citizen. But remember that white Australia only meant some people could become citizens. Um, uh, it was a limiting limiting factor in who could represent and who could be a voice in uh, our country's leadership. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a very interesting discussion. Go read the article if you haven't. Um, I think I'm definitely going to, like, you know, after this, like, do some research on <laughs> voting rights and how that's related to it because that's something that I've never really considered before. Um, that only citizens can vote and the impact of that. Um, but yeah, just in general, a lot to think about. Um, moving on, sort of have a chat about 
what's been in the news recently, what's going on. I guess the biggest thing that I can think of, even though it's, it feels a bit sensationalist and it's a bit of deja vu, is um, Kim Jong-un's coma. Um, I don't know what you guys think of this, um, if there's been any updates, if we know if it's real or not this time. Um, considering this, it doesn't feel that big anymore because, like, it's already this has already happened and it ended up sort of being like a non-thing. Um, I don't know what you guys think about it all. I honestly, I feel like I, I pretty much only saw it in the views of people making memes about it instead of like an actual newsletter thing, uh, like a news um, form. Like I think people were talking about how like a, a family member was going to step up and now be like the supreme leader. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it was more of a, I think people kind of took it more as like a joke, I think, yeah. rather than like a serious thing. As much. Yeah, and I guess that's the thing when it's, it's sort of unreliable news coming from North Korea, you can't yeah. ever really like trust that it's um, what's fully, the full story is anyway, so you might as well make a meme about it. <laughs> um, it'll be I interesting haven't heard to see what much happens. about it, to be honest. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Right, yeah. So apparently he's gone into a coma again and his sister's going to um, take over. But, like, it's not, yeah, you I know, it's. Sister, yeah. <laughs> and it's weird that we're not hearing that much about it. Like, I feel like it would be big news, but because it's already happened and because it's sort of weird and we don't really know if it's what's the truth and what's not, it's very confusing. But I guess we'll keep an eye out and see because who yeah. knows? <laughs> the other something um else that I feel like yeah I oh you go Hannah yeah no, no, sorry. something else that came as me it's also like news related um it's the what's the guy's name in Russia that like got poisoned or something yes. yeah no what's Novani it was so it was just, I think it was just like hey I knew that name because I literally just took a um a subject in semester one called like Russia and U.S. politics um and we talked about this guy and then I think he's already had some close calls with like being poisoned and stuff in the past so i was like oh my god did they actually did it for me? like again one of the ones where i think you get as a meme as well so yeah um i'm gonna sort of put a link to an article your article on it um because yeah i found this interesting too i haven't read this specific article but i did read mm. something about it i can't remember what it was though um yeah because they they think they poisoned his tea before he went on the plane or something yeah something like that um very interesting but i mean <laughs> but yeah yeah i remember getting notifications about him um from the new york times like I, I, one day it was um a couple of days ago it was he's going to germany to get treated and then a couple of hours later it was russia's blocked him from leaving russia to go to germany and then i went to sleep and wake up in the morning it was russia's cleared him to leave to germany and i was like oh. Well, that was a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think, um, in, in the context of what's happening in Belarus as well, um, yeah. you know how successful that is, um, it could uh, um, have a have a, a, a sort of a domino effect into Russia. Maybe who knows. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the other thing, more local news, but still big news, is with um, Dan Andrews announced a state of emergency um, for 
the uh, year, which doesn't mean that we're going to be in lockdown, which I think a lot of people have yeah. seemed to think. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we're in lockdown for a year. It just means that they have the ability um, to use like those things to announce that and to announce special um, mm. certain things. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people sort of freaked out when they heard that. I think it's just, yeah. I mean, I think it, we will be dealing with this for a long time to come, the outcomes of mm. um, the lockdown and of COVID and everything. But I think it's just a common sense move to be like, this allows us to, you know, jump in and out of lockdown to make face mask restrictions off and on again and to see how things are going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do think there's a lot of, like, misconception, though, um, I think, uh, just with news in general, I think, but I think something that the COVID situation and the state of emergency has kind of shown a light is, I guess, perhaps a lack of understanding within the public of what, a state of emergency actually entails as in, um, and like what it actually um, what policies can be put and stuff like that I think um, I think COVID is and the, the policies that a lot of states are implementing and a lot of countries are implementing is showing how um, there's often like a lack of understanding um, within societies about um, policies I don't know what you guys think yeah no I, I agree I think that's an interesting point yeah uh, I think uh with this this whole thing has shown how easy it is to spread ideas no matter how yeah malicious or you know um uh the conspiracy theories and all of that and you know um and like this state of emergency and and victorian um uh, it will surprise many people, but when it comes to state of emergencies, Victoria is really the only one that needs Parliament to pass a state of emergency. In Queensland, Western Australia, they've been in a state of emergency since the start, and um, it's indefinite. They could keep a state of emergency as long as they like. And so, um, uh, well, what, uh, like you said, Georgia, what it does for um, uh, us is that it's the only way the Chief Health Officer can put in those um, requirements and those restrictions as needed. And I think all this, um, you know, perhaps it might be a, a topic for your next uh, your next podcast or a future one is the role of social media in all of this, um, because yeah. it um, it's so easy to spread these ideas now. Um, oh, and yeah. it's so easy <laughs> when, when you present an idea as, you know, benevolent and you know uh, for example take uh people talking about suicides happening during this lockdown and why aren't people sharing those numbers and and research has shown that if you do share those numbers suicides do increase the less you talk about suicides the less suicides happen um you know of course you've got to keep those data and all of that but if you publicize it it's you know um it'll have a terrible effect and but the thing is when people do take that into social media and everybody's like yeah, suicide's bad, and then start sharing those contents. And when you actually go back and look at who's sharing all that, it turns out to be some, you know, um, conspiracy theorist nut jobs yeah. who think um, there's a yeah. there's a there's an underground network doing some terrible stuff. Um, and so I think social media and critical thinking at the at an individual's level. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is interesting.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're sort of ending the um, 12 o'clock. I had some games, but I don't think we'd have enough time. Um, thank you so much, guys, for joining. This was a very great discussion on a bunch of different things. It's a very wide variety of topics. Um, yeah, thanks so much for coming. That was very good. I do just want to very quickly shout out our event again this um, Thursday, which is our roundtable with Dr. Stephanie Williams. Mm -hmm. You can find it on our Facebook page or in our Instagram bio. Um, it's at 2 p.m. You have to register to receive the Zoom link beforehand. Um, she's the Ambassador for Regional Health and Security at DFAT. Um, she's a public health physician. Um, she... I went to Monash. She has a lot of interesting, had has had a lot of interesting roles. She's going to have a lot of interesting things to say. Um, you don't want to miss out. It's free if you're a Myas member, or you can buy your Myas member with the ticket, which um, is not too expensive, um, considering the number. We're doing pretty much an event a week at the moment. We also have, um, and Hammer, you might want to talk about Monash a bit, which is coming up. Yeah, so Monash is basically our... I guess annual model two-day model UN conference that usually occurs every um, every semester two during the mid-semester break. Um, this year because mid-semester break has two weeks, it's on the second week of mid-semester break, and also it's going to be online, so it's a little bit different. Um, but basically, um, Manash is a model UN conference, and it's beginner-friendly as well. So if you don't know what man is, you don't know whether you're into it. Um, we do have beginner committees as well that. Um, helps you grow and like learn your skills we walk you through it um, and so it's it's a great learning experience and it's also at a relatively good price as well this year it's um, nine dollars for members and then twelve dollars if you don't have membership um, so it's a great opportunity for you to learn some skills but also meet some new friends and Gus I know yeah. you um, I like shared your little photo the other day uh, you were director before you participated in Monash many times so uh, I'm sure if you want to add anything you can no I think I think you've said it all highly recommend if, if you're yeah. even thinking about doing it highly yeah. recommend just sign up yeah. yeah and if you've never done it before I did it last year and I've never done anything mm. even remotely like it I've never done debating model you and anything and it was so easy like they really it really puts you in it's the professional environment it's like a proper model UN but um you're given all the resources you need you can just you don't have to be an expert at all yeah um you just have to be keen yeah I think I think the beauty of it is like a lot of the time you want to get involved in something but you don't want to like commit to like obviously the fees but also like the long days of doing like a full week of model UN um so I think Manash is kind of like a short and sweet Kind of like introduction to mun as well um i'm that person that usually learns better by doing and i think uh, when i joined when i went to manash the first time around i had absolutely no clue but i think i learned so much more by just um watching and hearing the people around me speak and like learn through how they debated and how they spoke and i think that kind of influenced how i model un afterwards yeah absolutely um and you can register now for it um, mm -hmm. It's all on the Myers page. It's also Manash has a Facebook page. You can go and an Instagram. You can go and like it. You'll find it through all through all of Myers stuff. If you can't, if it doesn't come up when you just search Manash M U N A S H. Um, I think that's it. Um, thank you so much again, guys. Um, keep an eye out on Myers social media. Follow Pivot if you want great articles. Um, to read, there's multiple a week. Um, plenty to read. Lots of different topics different from different writers um mm -hmm. 
thank you for watching. Thank you guys again for joining me. Um, and we'll be back next week. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that episode of Atlas. Atlas is the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society, or MIAS. MIAS is an apolitical student society at Monash University, Clayton, that works towards establishing a network for students passionate about international affairs and relations. To become a member to get access to MIAS perks and events, such as our Model United Nation workshops, our roundtables featuring experienced diplomats, and our fun social events, go to portal.msa.monash.edu. Sign in, go to Buy Club Membership, select MIAS, and fill out your personal details. You can follow Myas on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all of which are linked in the description, or visit our website at myas.org.au. If you have a question from today's episode, or are interested in appearing on a future episode, please send an email to communications at myas.org.au. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>